Hello, and welcome to the Pursuit City Church podcast. Our mission is to lead people to know the love of Jesus Christ. Our prayer is that you will feel encouraged as well as challenged through the Word of God. If you need prayer or want to share your story, please send an email to info at PursuitCC.com. Get ready to enjoy this message. God bless. This, this series has been fun. I've enjoyed it. Um, every time I, I, I get further along in the life of David, it amazes me how much more I learn. So I'm going to do a quick recap on the last couple of weeks, and then we'll jump into the topic for today. So if you remember, if you've been here, um, we've talked about what the key of David was. The key itself as a physical object is a symbol of authority. The key in scripture is a symbol of God's approval, amen? And so when someone had a key uh, or was said, named after a key, it talked about God's approval. We talked about a man named Shebna who was an illegitimate ruler who assumed and captured authority unlawfully and God used the key of David to establish God-ordained authority. So when we talk about the key of David, we're talking about God-ordained authority, but there's a lot of things that fall under the key of David, right? So first we asked, why does David get a key named after him? Well, he got it named after him because David's only pursuit in life was to make sure he was following God. He messed up, yes. He was a murderer, yes. He was a liar, yes. He was a thief, yes. He was a warrior, had blood on his hands. He was an adulterer. He had a lot of problems. He wasn't a good father. There was a lot of things about him that were not perfect, that were not well. But one thing was never wavering. He worshiped God with his whole heart. And as flawed as he was, as, as, uh, as un unintegral as he was, if that's even a word, uh, the lack of integrity that he had at times, the truth of the matter is that he always found a way to go back and worship. He always found a way. When his son died, he went back and he worshiped the Lord. When his whole family was taken, he went back and he worshiped the Lord. When he lost the kingdom, he went back and worshiped the Lord. When his, own, when his other son chased him down to kill him, he went back and worshiped the Lord. It didn't matter what David did or what he was going through, he found a way to worship. And there are things in our life, the significance for us is that when there are things in our life that has claimed unlawful authority or illegitimate authority in our life, then we need a remedy. And that remedy is the key of David. Yes, ma'am. Preach it, sister. You know I love when you preach. (laughs) So in this series, we've been learning about what David did in the midst of loss. We've learned about his heart of worship. We learned about his heart for God. Today, we're going to learn about his heart for the kingdom. This beautiful scripture in Psalms 27, I didn't give it to you guys, so don't worry about it. Psalms 27, it's the one that we used a couple weeks back where it says, One thing I have desired of the Lord, that will I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. See, David 
wasn't like Moses. He wasn't like Abraham. He wasn't like the disciples. They all got to see God. They got to hear God audibly. They got to see him physically. David was most like us, but he was the best version of us, spiritually speaking, in that he understood that the only thing he should desire was the presence of God. So in, in other words, we should become like David because what did David do everywhere he went? He worshiped. When, so, when Saul was going through his tormenting spirit phase, they called on David to come play the harp and it would cast out that evil. Every time he worshiped, evil left. Every time he worshiped, victory came. And then he becomes king. And that's what we talked about last week. David becomes king after waiting decades to become king. He becomes king the minute as a boy. He doesn't become king till he's in his 30s. And when he becomes king, the very first thing he does, the very first act as king is he goes back and he gets the Ark of the Covenant, which was the very representation of the presence of God. We learned about this magical box, right? We can call it a magical box, right? And this magical box, it, it, there was nothing special about the box, okay? The, what was special about the box was God was wherever the box went. He used that symbol he used that artifact, that physical representation, to give a location of his presence. That was the Old Testament way, the Ark of the Covenant. It was everything for the kingdom of Israel. And when Israel lost in battle, they lost the Ark. David went and recaptured it, brought it back into the kingdom, brought back the presence of God to Israel, and celebrated. And then David did something because he never wanted to lose the ark again. He never wanted to lose the presence of God again. He never wanted to miss out on the glory of God again. So he did something. He created 24-7 worship. He instituted the first 24-7 worship thing you've ever heard of. It's become more popular now. There's many ministries that do 24-7 worship. But David had 288 singers at the beginning. And their sole job was to worship the Lord all day and all night. There were 24 different worship teams, 12 members in each team. And this worship and prayer meeting was the centerpiece of his government while he was king. The entire time that David was king, worship never stopped. Eventually, the number grew of worship leaders to 4,000. That's how many musicians he had on staff, ready to go, ready to play, just to worship the Lord. And then we see this obscure scripture in Amos chapter 9. When Amos is prophesying about the future, he's prophesying about our day. He's prophesying about the time we're living in. And he says these words. He says, on that day, I will raise up the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down and repair its damages. I will raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old. Now, that tabernacle he's talking about is not a physical tabernacle. It's a spiritual tabernacle. Remember, we just, we just sang the words a minute ago that I am your temple. You got to remember what Jesus said when he came to the earth and he did what he did. He paid the price that he paid. We no longer have to walk into a physical temple to give worship and praise. We've become the temple. 
We are now the temple of the Holy Spirit. And what Amos is talking about is that he will raise up the tabernacle of David again. The tabernacle is you. The tabernacle is me. And how God wants to raise up in this day a desire to worship at all times. To never stop worshiping. Thank you, Carol. How's that possible? You see, he wants to restore what we have lost. And that is simply that we are supposed to be connected at all times. We're supposed to be in tune at all times. It's almost as if the older we got, the more unaware we got of the presence of God of the realness of God. At least that was my story growing up. But we become a fulfilled prophecy when we allow God to be the centerpiece of our life, when we allow God to be the point, to be the focus. If he is just an additional part of our life and not the center of our life, nothing works. Nothing works. If he is only just something that we participate in because we're supposed to be good Christians and go to church, then we miss the point. The tabernacle of David is supposed to be moving inside of us at all times. I believe that David encountered the Lord as we read many Psalms last week where it talked about his visions of Jesus. It talked about his visions of the fact that he knew that there was one coming that would be crucified, that would be buried and would be resurrected. David prophesied about those things. He prophesied about the coming Messiah. And when we meditate the way David meditated, what did David say? He said, day and night I meditate on your word. In other words, he was chewing on the word all day long. Have you ever tried that? Have you ever tried that? Like take a scripture. You don't got to do a whole chapter. Just take like a portion. Take a scripture and literally think about it all day. You know what will end up happening? That scripture will come alive to you. That scripture will be so real to you. It'll, it'll mark you. You'll never forget it. And that's what David did. He sat there, and he sat there, and he sat there, and he poured over the law. He poured over the scripture. He poured over the prophecies. He poured over everything that was in the book that they had at the time. And then he began to encounter God for himself. You know, what happens to us is we want God to just come and intervene right here, right now. And he's saying, I just want you to sit. Can, can you just sit? Remember the story we read about Martha and Mary? Martha is in the, in the kitchen. She's working. She's cleaning. She's trying to prepare because Jesus is coming over. Mary is where? Sitting. She's sitting at his feet. She's taking the time. And then Martha scolds Mary. What are you doing? You should be working. And Jesus says, no, she's chosen the better way. Don't condemn her. She's exactly where she's supposed to be. What would it look like? If we started to sit without expecting anything, what would it look like? 
if you started to worship the Lord without throwing your list at him, without asking him for all these things, what would it look like to just sit and just be and just reside with God? Because honestly, what we do is we come to him and we say, We've got, I got this problem and I got that problem. Can you fix this? I, I need this solution. I, this problem is going on. This issue, my kids this, my job this. When's the last time you just sat? When's the last time you just worship? Like truly worship with no desire for anything in return. With no expectation for anything in return. The last thing we talked about last week is what separates us from everyone else. What separates Christianity truly walking with Jesus what separates us with everything else and it's simple it's that for us it's Jesus plus nothing we don't need anything else we don't need to worship anything else we don't need to pray to anyone else we don't need to serve anyone else Jesus is the Son of God. He is the creator of the world. The Bible says that the entire universe was created by him, through him, and for him. That's powerful to me. That's powerful to me. When you think of light, when you think of gravity, when you think of matter, think of Jesus. Because it passed through him to get here. Chew on that one. Today, we're going to learn about David's desire for the kingdom of God. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, I thank you so much for your word, for the beauty that it is, for the wonderful creation that it is, for the, the, the sword that it is, the tool that it is to, to mold us and shape us and build us, correct us, and set us on a path. Lord, I ask that you use this word this morning. To do exactly just that. Let us hear from you in Jesus' name. And everybody said? Amen. Amen. So what I want to do is kind of set up the, the chapter we're about to read. There's so much to the story of David's life that I kind of just need to give you a little bit of a backstory. We all know that David was anointed by Samuel as king when he was a boy. And he was anointed in secret. Right? He was anointed in secret. No one knew except his family. David went from being anointed as king, he went back to tending sheep immediately. Just went right back to doing his job. He went back to cleaning up sheep poop and uh, taking care of them and singing over them and playing the harp. His first audience were a bunch of sheep. How about that? David then steps up and fights Goliath. I don't know if you know this, but he was bringing some food to his brothers, he was bringing some cheese. Some ketchup dip, you know? He's bringing some cheese over to his brothers, and he's like the, the valley, and he's... And they're like, this dude's barking at us, and, and, and Goliath is across the, the valley, and he's barking blasphemies to the Lord, right? He's literally defying God, and David's like, no, 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 we can't have that. Hold my cheese. <laughs> and then he goes, and he defeats Goliath. When he does this... He gets, he catches the eye of Saul, the king, because not even Saul was willing to get out there and fight this dude, right? So then all of a sudden, 
David is kind of on the radar. Later on, Saul disobeys God and the spirit of the Lord leaves Saul, right? This is how the Holy Spirit operated in the Old Testament. He would rest upon a person until they were completely disobedient and then he'd leave. Today, we have grace and that doesn't happen for us. Praise the Lord. So David is called in as a harp player, as a musician, to come and soothe Saul while he's battling this evil torment. And every time David comes and plays, the evil leaves. So now we're in a new season of David's life. We're in 1 Samuel 18, verse 1. It says this. Can I get a little bit more volume on here? I don't know if it's just me, maybe down here. It says, after David had finished talking with Saul, he met Jonathan, the king's son. There was an immediate bond between them, for Jonathan loved David. From that day on, Saul kept David with him and wouldn't let him return home. So now Saul is like, man, this guy is too good at everything. He's not allowed to go home. He's officially a part of my staff. He's a part of my court now. Verse 3, and Jonathan made a solemn pact with David because he loved him as he loved himself. Jonathan sealed the pact by taking off his robe and giving it to David together with his tunic, his sword, his bow, and his belt. Whatever Saul asked David to do, David did it successfully. So Saul made him a commander over the men of war, an appointment that was welcomed by the people and Saul's officers alike. When the victorious Israelite army was returning home after David had killed the Philistine, women from all the towns of Israel came out to meet King Saul. They sang and danced for joy with tambourines and cymbals. This was their song. Saul has killed thousands and David his ten thousands. This made Saul very angry. What's this, he said. They credit David with the ten thousand and me with only thousands. Next, they'll be making him their king. So from that time on, Saul kept a jealous eye on David. The very next day, a tormenting spirit from God overwhelmed Saul, and he began to rave in his house like a madman. David was playing the harp as he did each day. But Saul had a spear in his hand, and he suddenly hurled it at David, intending to pin him to the wall. But David escaped him twice. Saul was then afraid of David, for the Lord was with David and had turned away from Saul. Finally, Saul sent him away and appointed him commander over a thousand men, and David faithfully led his troops into battle. David continued to succeed in everything he did, for the Lord was with him. When Saul recognized this, he became even more afraid of him but all of Israel and Judah loved David because he was so successful at leading his troops into battle one day Saul said to David I am ready to give you my older daughter Merib as your wife but first you must prove yourself to be a real warrior by fighting the Lord's battles for Saul thought I'll send him out against the Philistines and let them kill him rather than doing it myself and this is David's response. Who am I? And what is my family in Israel that I should be the king's son-in-law? David exclaimed. My, fa fam my father's family is nothing. So when the time came for Saul to give his daughter Merib into marriage, David, he gave her instead to Adriel, a man of Meholah. So Saul 
just said, no, nah, never mind. Played with him. In the meantime, Saul's daughter, Michael, had fallen in love with David. And Saul was delighted when he heard about it. Here's another chance to see him killed by the Philistines, Saul said to himself. But to David, he said, today you have a second chance to become my son-in-law. Then Saul told his men to say to David, the king really likes you, and so do we. Why don't you accept the king's offer and become his son-in-law? When Saul's men said these things to David, he replied, how can a poor man from a humble family afford the bride price for the daughter of a king? When Saul's men reported this back to the king, he told them, tell David that all I want for the bride price is a hundred Philistine foreskins. This dude's nasty, just saying. Vengeance, vengeance on my enemies is all I really want. But what Saul had in mind was that David would be killed in the fight. And if you think that's something, check this out. David was delighted to accept the offer. Before the time limit expired, he and his men went out and killed 200 Philistines. Then David fulfilled the king's requirement by presenting all their foreskins to him. So Saul gave his daughter Michael to David to be his wife. When Saul realized that the Lord was with David and how much his daughter Michael loved him, Saul became even more afraid of him. And he remained David's enemy for the rest of his life. Every time the rest of Saul's officers so David was more successful against them than all the rest of Saul's officers. So David's name became very famous. This is wild to me. First of all, Saul is cuckoo. Second of all, David's pretty gangster. <laughs> to show up with double, it's like, what is wrong with you, man? <laughs> but it was a... It was kind of a subliminal message, if you will. Like, hey, listen, I don't even count myself worthy to be your son-in-law. So I'm going to do above and beyond every single time. This is a man who just tried to kill him twice. Think about this. Saul is the king that is losing his mind. David knows he's losing his mind. He's in there playing the harp to help him. He tries to kill him twice, and still he says, I'm going to go above and beyond for this man. I don't deserve to be his father-in-law. Not only that, David knows that he's king. David knows his own future. He knows that God called him to take his place. And instead of puffing up and Making that known, he's like, no, 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 I'm going to serve this man. I'm going to do whatever it takes to serve Saul. So I have a question for you. Who or what is your Saul? Because we all have something, right? There's something in your life. Or there's someone in your life that is like this, that is hovering over you, a situation, an event in your life that intends to kill you 
intends to destroy you, intends to completely eliminate you. Maybe you know someone like that. That's dangerous. The response that David laid out for us was not to run, was not to fight. It was to serve. That's wild to me. How many of you would serve a person who intends to kill you and has tried twice? Now, of course, we're not talking literally no more. This is Old Testament scripture. And if you remember some of the Bible study we've gone through, we have to learn to take the principles of the old to understand the new. So we have to understand what is the principle here? What is the principle that we're trying to connect to our life today? Because I think somebody would have already gone to jail at this point, right? Like this is different today. But what's the principle for us? This wasn't the only time that Saul was angry with David, was afraid of David. This wasn't the only time he tried to kill David. This wasn't the only time he tried to set him out to, to, for failure, pretty much. He tried to set him up for failure several times. Saul was too much of a coward to do it himself. He was afraid now of David. He knew that God was with him. And in chapters 19 through 23, all we see is Saul chasing David through the mountains. Because at a certain point, David said, if I fight him, I'm going to kill him, and I'm not allowed to kill him. Again, understand this. If David kills Saul, who becomes king? His best friend, Jonathan. And in a heartbeat, Jonathan would have made David king. In a heartbeat, David could have took over. In a heartbeat, David could have got his way there. His best friend is Saul's son. His best friend said, here's my bow, here's my tunic, here's my arrow, here's my robe. In other words, everything that's mine is yours. Jonathan was next in line to be king. He would have easily said, here you go. Please lead us. He loved him. He was his friend. But instead of David making those moves, he said, I can no longer sit here, stay here, because if I fight him, I'm going to kill him. I have to run. Now is, there is no other choice. So in 1 Samuel 24, we see something interesting. It says, after Saul returned from fighting the Philistines, he was told that David had gone into the wilderness of En Gedi. So Saul chose 3,000 elite troops. How would you like to be chased down by 3,000, like, Green Berets, like elite dudes? From all Israel went and searched for David and his men near the rocks of the wild goats. At the place where the road passes some sheepfolds, Saul went into a cave to relieve himself. But as it happened, David and his men were hiding farther back in that very cave. So Saul's in there using the bathroom, and David's in there too, but they can't see him. It's pretty wild to me. Must have been a nasty cave, just saying. Now's your opportunity, David's men whispered to him. Today the Lord is telling you, I will certainly put your enemy into your power. 
to do with what as you wish. So David crept forward and cut off a piece of the hem of Saul's robe. But then David's conscience, check this out. Then David's conscience began bothering him because he had cut Saul's robe. He said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do this to my Lord, the king. I shouldn't attack the Lord's anointed one for the Lord himself has chosen him. So David restrained his men and did not let them kill Saul. After Saul had left the cave and gone his way, David came out and shouted after him, my Lord, the king. And when Saul looked around, David bowed low before him. Then he shouted to Saul, why do you listen to the people who say I'm trying to harm you? This very day you can see with your own eyes it isn't true. For the Lord placed you at my mercy back there in the cave. Some of my men told me to kill you, but I spared you. For I said I will never harm the king. He is the Lord's anointed one. Look, my father. And he calls him his father. At what have I in my hand? It's a piece of the hem of your robe. I cut it off, but I didn't kill you. This proves that I am not trying to harm you and that I have not sinned against you, even though you have been hunting for me to kill me. May the Lord judge between us. Perhaps the Lord will punish you for what you're trying to do to me, but I will never harm you. As the old proverb says, from evil people come evil deeds, so you can be sure I will never harm you. Who is the king of Israel trying to catch anyway? Should he spend his time chasing one who is worthless as a dead dog or a single flea? May the Lord therefore judge which of us is right and punish the guilty one. He is my advocate and he will rescue me from your power. When David finished speaking, Saul called back, is that really you, my son David? Then he began to cry. And he said to David, you are a better man than I am, for you have repaid me good for evil. Yes, you have been amazingly kind to me today. For when the Lord put me in a place where you could have killed me, you didn't do it. Who else would let his enemy get away when he had him in his power? May the Lord reward you well for the kindness you have shown me today. And now I realize that you are surely going to be king and that the kingdom of Israel will flourish under your rule. Now swear to me by the Lord that when that happens, you will not kill my family and destroy my line of descendants. So David promised to Saul with an oath. Then Saul went home, but David and his men went back to their stronghold. Incredible story. I don't know about you, but I'd have thrown a dagger at the dude. I'd have chopped his head off. I would have took his legs out to make sure he couldn't chase me. Like, I would have done everything. But David was different. His heart was different. He understood something that our culture has lost. He understood honor. He understood authority on Saul. He anointed Saul to be king. And even though he himself was anointed to be king one day, no one had given him that authority yet. He could not walk in that authority yet. He could walk in the knowledge, but not in action. And so he understood that if I touch this man, I will never be what God has called me to be. 
Here's what we have to learn. You have to serve the souls in your life to receive the sacred in your life. If you really want the sacred in your life, you have to learn to serve the souls in your life. And sometimes that means confronting the very thing you hate the most. The thing that is trying to kill you, the thing that is trying to destroy you, that event, that circumstance, that issue, that memory, whatever it is, those things are the souls in your life that you have to go back and handle and deal with. And as much as we'd like to just banish them and forget them forever, that's not how it works. It's not how it works. David understood a principle that if he was willing to receive a kingship, a lordship, a rulership, a kingdom that would last forever, he had to restrain his ability and his right of revenge, of anger, of frustration. How many of us are well within our rights to hold someone to something they did? To hold someone to a mistake they made. To hold someone to a problem they caused. How many of us are willing and within our right to hang it over their head? But David did otherwise. He said, no. He is my king. He is my Lord. He is my father. And I cannot touch God's anointed. Some say David was scared and was just playing it safe. That's why he was hiding. But David had a track record of taking risk. We just read a crazy story he did earlier. There was nothing safe about David. There was nothing safe about it. But David was not trying to anger the Lord. Here's what we have to learn. Risk, devoid of honor is just pride. When we try to take risks and do things, but we don't honor our way there, we're just being prideful. Here's another way to say it. Risk devoid of honor just brings judgment. David could have took the risk. He could have killed Saul. Who would have known besides him and his men? Who would have known? Later on, the men could have came and found Saul just lying there in the cave and no one would have known how he got killed. He could have took that risk, but he didn't because he had honor. And risk without honor just brings judgment. And David knew this. He said, if I take this risk and I don't honor the way that I'm supposed to honor, I'm just going to bring judgment on myself. And here's the problem. We respond so emotionally. We respond so angrily. We respond so quick. Because we've learned that in order to protect ourselves, in order to, to, to keep ourselves safe, that's it. Carol knows. That's right. If we don't learn to show honor even to our enemies, 
then we're just bringing judgment on ourselves. Somebody take a breath. <laughs> Look at what Proverbs 22 verse 1 says. It says, choose a good reputation over great riches. Being held in high esteem is better than silver or gold. Choose a reputation over great riches. Everybody wants to make money, but how many of you want a good reputation? David had that in spades. He had the reputation. He didn't have nothing. He had nothing else. He's fleeing for his life. He's camping out in the wilderness. He has nothing else, but he had a reputation, and he guarded that reputation. Later on, Saul and Jonathan both die in battle. They both die. So who's going to be next? Naturally, who would be next? David. Saul and Jonathan both die in battle. And Saul was literally bleeding out, but he didn't want to die in pain. So he asked one of his men to finish him off, to just, just to end it for him. And the man was like, I can't, I can't do that. You're the king. Like, I'm sorry. And he goes, no, I command you, just kill me. Just finish it off. So this young man kills Saul and ends his life for him so that he's not suffering. When David hears about that, he's enraged. He said, how dare you touch the king? You would think David would be celebrating. You would think David would be happy. He's finally dead. He's not chasing me no more. No, no, no. How dare you touch the king? This is wild to me. You know what he does to this man? He executes this man. For not honoring. Then David turns around. Jonathan writes a song for Saul. And writes a song for Jonathan. What? You would think David has lost his mind. Like, what are you doing? You're grieving over them? Yeah, he is. Because despite the circumstances, he loved him. Despite everything he did to him, he loved him. He was still his father-in-law. He was still his king. He was still the one who made a way for him. He's grieving over his enemy when he's next to be king. He's not throwing a party. Where's my crown? Where's my throne? Please get me some more queso. He's crying. This is wild to me. So I say again, who or what is your soul? Who or what is your soul? So I know what you're thinking. You're like, probably thinking, okay, where's this going? Where's me on come? I want to read from the book of Romans now. Because it paints the picture for us. It helps us understand. The book of Romans is 
probably, if you're new in the Lord, if you're trying to understand who God is, if you're trying to understand this walk with God, you want to know what you should do? You should go read the book of Romans a couple times. You know why? Because every major understanding, every major doctrine, every major belief of Christianity is in the book of Romans. You can learn so much about the Christian faith by just reading the book of Romans over and over and over. In, so, in Romans chapter 5, verse 1, it says, Therefore, since we have been made right in God's sight by faith, we have peace with God because of what Jesus Christ our Lord has done for us. Because of our faith, Christ has brought us into this place of undeserved privilege where we now stand. And we confidently and joyfully look forward to sharing God's glory. All good stuff. All cool. We can rejoice too when we run into problems and trials. There's the souls. For we know that they help us develop endurance. And endurance develops strength of character. And character strengthens our confident hope of salvation. And this hope will not lead to disappointment. For we know how dearly God loves us because he has given us the Holy Spirit to fill our hearts with his love. And then here it is right here. When we were utterly helpless, Christ came at just the right time and died for us sinners. Now most people would not be willing to die for an upright person, though someone might perhaps be willing to die for a person who is especially good. But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were sinners. And since we have been made right in God's sight by the blood of Christ, he will certainly save us from God's condemnation. For since our friendship with God was restored by the death of his son while we were still his what? Enemies. We will certainly be saved through the life of his son. So now we can rejoice in our wonderful new relationship with God because our Lord Jesus Christ has made us friends of God. Enemy. Here's the truth. We were all once enemies of God. And if you're in this room and you don't have a relationship with God, you right now are an enemy of God. Not because he's looking at you as such, but because you haven't received him as king. Jesus already defeated the enemy of this world. And he did it without the need for you to even be involved in it. The result was your freedom. The result was my freedom. The only responsibility that we have now the only job that we have now is to worship the king. 
The only agenda we should have now is to worship the king. You don't have to fight the enemy because God already did that. You don't have to fight with people because God already did that. You don't have to fight your past because God already did that. And you don't have to fight your future because God already did that too. What is the principle that David is teaching us? That when we feel the need to bring up the sword, bow. He had every opportunity. He was within his right. He said, no. I am not going to pay evil for evil. I'm going to learn how to honor my way there. I don't know what your Saul is. I don't know who your Saul is or what the situation was. But what would it look like for you if you stopped trying to get revenge or to get justification or to get some sort of justice and instead bowed? All you have to do is bow to your king. If he is truly the Lord of your life, then he takes care of it. He takes care of those problems. Maybe your soul is your own body and it's betraying you. Maybe you have a sickness. Maybe your soul is a loved one that you lost. Maybe your soul situation that you can't find your way out of. Whatever it is, bow to the king. Because your hands on it will not bring you the satisfaction will not bring you the joy, will not bring you peace. Peace comes when God intervenes. Peace comes when God creates the solution, the stand. I've just got a little bit more to share with you. Worship is warfare. You don't have to pick up a sword and go to battle. You don't have to fight physically with people. You don't got to fight physically with the devil. In fact, don't even pay attention to that guy. Don't even give him the time of day. He's not worth it. He's already been defeated. Worship is your warfare. Worship is your weapon. Worship is the tool to battle everything that's coming against you. And worship is a necessity. You must learn to worship your way through this life. You will not make it without making him king over everything. He has to be king over all of it, not just part of it. If he is really our king, if he is really the Lord of our life, then he reigns over all areas. He reigns over all our problems, 
our circumstances, our wins, our failures, our good days, our bad days. He reigns over all of it. Oh man, you might be fighting and fighting and fighting and trying to claw your way and make your own way. But just like God stood there and wrestled with Jacob, he said, why are you wrestling? Why, Jacob? Why are you wrestling? Are you not tired? Are you not weary? Are you not wore out yet? Like why struggle when really all you have to do is surrender? All you have to do is let him be king. Before we worship anymore, I want to give an opportunity this morning. If you're here this morning and he is not your king, then right now is the time. Right now is your opportunity. Because I'll tell you this, I've lived a life trying to do it my own way and it never works. You always still find yourself empty. You always still find yourself joyless. You always still find yourself angry. And I can't promise you things will be immediately fixed or everything's gonna be rainbows, but I can promise you this, you won't have to go through those things alone anymore. So if you're here in this room this morning and you are ready to make Jesus the Lord of your life, just lift your hands up. Thank you for joining us this week. Our vision is to plant churches that are life-changing. If you would like to support our ministry, you can easily do so by visiting our website, PursuitCC.com. Also, follow us on all social media outlets by using at PursuitCC. Thank you and God bless.